What is God calling to you to right now? Is there a particular person God is calling you to share the gospel with right now? Is there something that's holding you back? Are you afraid to live out the assignment God has for you in your life? And if so, what is that fear? Well, why are you afraid? I think we all struggle with different fears as we, feel, as we try to live out the assignment God has for us. Sometimes it's a results-based fear, like I'm not going to be able to accomplish what God has called me to. And so we focus in on ourselves instead of on God, and we think, man, I just can't do what God has called me to. Or maybe it's a time-based fear, like at some point down the road, that's when I'll get to this. I know God's calling me to ministry here and now, but, but God doesn't quite understand all that I have going on in my life. And so, you know, once I've got all my ducks in a row over here, then I can finally get to the ministry God has called me to over here. Maybe it's a fear that you're not equipped. Man, how often have I experienced that fear? Still to this day, experience that fear. And I can remember when I started candidating for this position, I did not feel equipped. In a lot of cases, I still don't. But I can remember thinking, you know, who cares if I have 12 years of ministry experience? I still don't feel equipped. Who cares if I've gone through seminary? Who cares if I, if I had fantastic mentor pastors? I still didn't feel equipped. And so we came out to candidate, and there was a part of me that was like, man, what are you taking on, Aaron? Can you, can you do this? And I remember during one of the interviews, Stanley said, Aaron, God equips the called. If he's called you to this, he will equip you. And I've held on tight to that. God equips the called. So we use a lack of being equipped as an excuse not to do ministry. And we focus in on ourselves instead of focusing in on the God who will equip us for the assignment that he has given us. And that's what we're going to study today as we turn towards Revelation 11. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 11. If you're uh, not familiar with the Bible, it's all the way in the back. There's big, big numbers that give us the chapter, small numbers that give us the verses. So we're in chapter 11. We're going to read through all the way through 14 today. I tried to go through all of 11, but that was just too much to bite off for today. So... That's what we're going to read through today as we continue our series, Hopeful. We named it uh, the series Hopeful because Revelation should be giving us hope. As Christians, as we study the book of Revelation, it should give us hope. Sometimes we find it confusing. Sometimes Christians find it scary. It shouldn't be that confusing. It shouldn't be that scary to us. It should be, of all things, hopeful for us. Because it shows us, in the end, when all is said and done, God is victorious. So we should be hopeful in it all. So we start off, the, the uh, revelation is broken into four different visions. The first vision, John receives letters to seven different churches. And then in chapter 4, we started the second vision. In the second vision, he's called up to the throne room of heaven. And he describes the glory of God and the glory of Christ. 
And then he lets us know that there are, there's a scroll that's going to reveal the end times, but no one can open the scroll because it's sealed with seven seals. So he begins to weep. And then one of the angels says, don't cry. The lamb is worthy to open it. So the lamb, who is Jesus Christ, starts to open the seals. And we see these seals being seals of God is, is revealing man's depravity. So, so we see the first four seals, man is totally depraved. And then we start to see in the fifth seal, the saints cry out. The sixth seal, God begins judgment. The seventh seal holds in the trumpets. The seventh trumpet is going to be where the bulls are found. So then we get into the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are, begin God's judgment. So we see, and we'll get to it in a little bit, that this is like a courtroom proceeding showing that man is not worthy to have eternal life, yet God can give him grace, yet man will reject that grace. And so it's God showing that man deserves death. And we we walk through that, and chapter 7 is an interlude, and then last week we got into the second interlude in chapter 9. The interlude draws deeper into the vision. So the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they're going to show how God is judging man, how God is interacting with unbelieving man. The interludes show us how God is dealing with the believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. So last week we started the second interlude in chapter 10, and we will continue that second interlude today in chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, four pours... Sorry, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the, secret, or the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven, saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we have a couple, what I'm going to call introductory issues before we even get into this uh, 
chapter. And the first introductory issue, I think, is going to be a timeline issue. So if you've ever wondered about the timeline of, of the tribulation and of revelation and where we get the timeline from, uh, most theologians would say it's seven years. We get this seven years from Daniel 9. So let me read Daniel 9, uh, 25 through 27 really quickly, and then we're going to break that down just to give us an idea of timeline here. So Daniel 9, uh, starting in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out, so we'll stop for a second, 70 weeks, the, the literal Hebrew in here is 77s. So uh, we kind of think in tens, that's our culture. We think in groups of tens. Uh, does anybody like groups of tens? I'm just curious. Anybody like thinking just, yeah, tens, it's a nice round number. Does anybody like odd numbers? Just curious. Just, I'm just really curious right now. My wife likes odd numbers, prefers odd numbers. I don't get it. I'm not sure why. But uh, growing up liking sports, I always preferred evens, because then we always had an even amount of people to play. Anyways, that's beside the point. They, the Hebrews thought in groups of sevens. And so uh, 70 weeks is just 70 sevens. And uh, so you could think of 70 groups of 70 years. So uh, it's, there's going to be 70 sets of 70 years, which equals 490 years, all right? So, and this is going to take a place to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. So this is God revealing to Daniel in you know, the 6th century B.C., so or in the 500s, this is God revealing to Daniel how the world, is, how he's going to bring about righteousness in the world, how he's going to undo the mess that we have made of the world, how he's going to undo sin. That's what God is revealing to Daniel here. And then he's going to break down this timeline a little bit more. Know therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. All right, so this first set is going to be seven times seven, so that's 49. It begins in, in uh, 444 BC with Artaxerxes, permitting Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. So that's our first set, right? Then there will be a next set. Then for 62 weeks... It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. All right, so that's our second set. That's 62 times 7, so that's 434. Uh, so the first and second, which are consecutive, are going to be 483. So according to the Gregorian calendar, this would be around 39 AD. Now the Jews didn't use the Gregorian calendar. They used the Hebrew calendar. Uh, it's a lunar calendar. Uh, I would say it's more accurate, but that's just me. Uh, so, but anyways, that would actually put it at around 33 A.D. All right? Now, this is really kind of cool because the Jews had done the math. If you've ever wondered why there was so much talk about Messiah around the time of Jesus, Jews were, uh, Second Temple Jews were almost like obsessed with this idea of Messiah around the time of Jesus. And there's a couple influences on that. One was Rome. Rome was an oppressor. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted to get rid of Rome. But that wasn't the first time they had dealed or dealt with an oppressor. You know, there, there had been over 400 years 
of dealing with different oppressors, waiting for a Messiah. But they weren't looking for the Messiah all through all those 400 years up until around the time of Jesus. And then all of a sudden you see all these people claiming to be Messiah. And you see all of this like flock to different people who would claim to be Messiah. There was a bit of, of an obsession with Messiah. One of the reasons why is because the Jews had done the math. The Jews are not dumb. They were very intelligent. They knew Scripture well. They knew Daniel. They had done the math. They knew that right around this time was supposed to be the time of the Messiah. So they were looking for the Messiah. 33 AD, a lot of uh, theologians believe that that is the time that Jesus was crucified. There's a little bit of debate. Some believe 30. Some believe 33. I kind of lean more towards the 33. So, so we see that that kind of fulfills this the first two sets of this prophecy. Now, let's keep going. And the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That gets fulfilled in 70 AD, when Rome comes in and destroys the temple. Alright? Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations, and decrees. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So that's our last set, and it's going to be one seven. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. So if you want to uh, understand the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, you really have to understand Daniel 9. If you really want to understand timelines with Revelation, you have to understand Daniel 9. Let's go to the next slide here. So the last set of sevens is one year. So there's a bit of a gap between the, the first two sets that are consecutive and the last set. Uh, we are living in that gap right now. The church gap uh, is that gap. Paul refers to this as a mystery, uh, but in Revelation that becomes a little bit more cleared up. So this is the last seven years. During this time, one who we'll later find out is called the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel. So at the beginning of the tribulation, Israel will finally have peace. And then halfway through, the Antichrist will break his covenant, and he will, the, the Jews will be persecuted like they have never been persecuted before. So that's the breaking down of the tribulation. It's going to be seven years. It's going to be broken into half. Let's go to the next slide. So this is Constable's notes. Uh, I really like his notes. You can find them actually for free at netbible.org if you ever were interested. Uh, it's a really cool resource, by the way. But for those of you who like graphs, this is the graph that we've got here. So 44 BC is where it starts. 33 AD is where the next one, where the church age starts. Then we'll get into the tribulation, three and a half years or half a week, and then three and a half years or another half a week during the tribulation period. Can we go to the next slide, please? All right. I don't know if we need to get to, into that yet, but we might as well. So, the question is, since we, since we talked about timeline a little bit, and we see here that there is uh, one, in verse 3, 1,260 uh, days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. Also, the holy city will be trampled in verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2. The holy city will be trampled for 42 months. That is three and a half years. So there's a little bit of debate uh, in 
uh, about when this is going to happen. Is it in the beginning of the tribulation or is it at the end of the tribulation? The major argument for the second half of the, gen, uh, of the tribulation is that Gentiles will trample on the court. And that sounds a lot like what's going to happen after the Antichrist breaks his covenant. Then the Jews will uh, experience persecution like they've never experienced before. That sounds like the second half. The major argument for the location of, in, in, sorry, the major argument for the first half is that the location in the entire narrative. So the people that believe that it happens in the first half will say he's looking back, explaining what is happening with the believers up until this point. And at this point, we're at the halfway, and then we'll look forward to the next half. You're more than welcome to believe either one. It's not going to have a great theological impact on you today. But I would say I lean, whenever I read their arguments, I kind of bounce back and forth. I lean a little bit more towards the first half, and uh, I would say that the, the trampling of the holy city for 42 months is looking forward, and the, uh, per, the two witnesses is looking backwards. That's kind of how I view it. You're more than welcome to disagree with me. And I view it like that partly because of where it's located and partly because of their, of their ministry. So that's why I would view it like that. Once again, it's not going to have a huge theological impact on you today. There's not a lot of principles that we'll be able to draw from it. So, those are our issues that we want to get into, our introductory issues. Now, let's go ahead and dig in. Then I was given. So the then I was, is he, it's still the interlude. He's just jumping deeper into the vision. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. The measuring staff and the rise and measure are symbolic for this is my ownership. We'll find this in Ezekiel. God does this in Ezekiel as well. And it's simply saying, this is what I own. This is what I own. I'm not going to allow Satan or any non-believers to touch this. So that's what it's symbolic of. So he's rising and he's going to measure the temple of God. There are a couple questions about what temple this is. Some people believe it's the second temple, the Herodian temple. That would have been fresh on the audience's mind. Although we're, John is writing in probably 92, the temple was destroyed in 70, that temple would have been the temple that his audience would have been most familiar with. That temple had several different courts that had an inner court, which was the Holy of Holies. Then it had the court of Jewish men, and then the court of women. And then outside of that, outside of the temple altogether, was a court of Gentiles. There was even a sign that, that as Gentiles would approach the actual temple itself that said, beware Gentiles, if you go beyond this point, you're going to die. It's, that's paraphrased. But that's essentially what the sign was saying. So, so if you were referencing this, then that court of the Gentiles would have been that outside court. I don't think that's what he's getting at. There's another court which would be Ezekiel's court. When Ezekiel is given a vision, he is given, or sorry, another temple, he is given a vision of an eschatological or end times temple, a temple that God will build. That temple has a holy of holies, and then it has a place for believers. I think that's the temple that he is referencing here. So that's the temple. It doesn't have an outside court for Gentiles. So he's going to measure the temple of God, 
And he's going to measure the altar and those who worship there, saying, this is what I have. God is saying, this is what I own. These are mine. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This is symbolic for persecution. So God is showing that he owns the believers, that he's, that he's going to hold the believers, but that there will also be a time of persecution. So the will trample the holy city is that they're going to destroy, the non-believers are going to destroy the holy city, meaning Jerusalem, for 42 months. So that's three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I want us to recognize the contrast that's given here. The word given and the word grant are the same in the Greek, and it's showing God has authority. And there's a contrast in what he is doing with his authority. He is giving over to the nations that they would trample the holy city. God is allowing this to happen. He's allowing the persecution to happen. But even as he's allowing that persecution to happen, he's saying, I will grant or I will give authority to my two witnesses. God is the one in control. It may seem chaotic. We may not understand it at all times. But God is making a point here. And that is, he will be the one to give control. Or he is the one that has control. He's the one that gives authority. To my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. This is a reference, you know, sometimes when we think of prophesying or uh, we think of like being able to predict the future or saying, hey, I got a word from God. This is going to happen in the future. This is really more of like an Old Testament call. And it, what an Old Testament prophet did is he would forth, foretell, saying God's going to do this, but he would also foretell. And oftentimes it was the foretelling that was more common. And what that means is it's a call to repentance. It's saying you all are in sin. You all are rebelling against God. And it's time to repent. That's what these prophets are doing. They're not telling the future. They're not looking into the future and saying, this is what God's going to do. What they're doing, their whole ministry is to look to the nations, look to the people in rebellion, and say, you're in rebellion against God. It's time to repent. That's their ministry. And they're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth represents mourning for the unrepentant. I think that's so important for us to think about. We talked a little bit about it last week. That too often, we can see unrepentant non-believers as the enemy. And oftentimes, they'll even paint themselves as our adversary. There are people in America right now that would love to shut down the church. There are people that are opposed to the church that would love nothing more than to see us disband. And they see us as the enemy. But we are not supposed to see them as the enemy. These two witnesses don't see the unrepentant as the enemy. They mourn for them. They grieve for them. They know what eternity looks like without God. And so instead of seeing them as the enemy, they see them 
as people that are doomed to a horrendous fate. I think that's important for us to hold on to as well. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, some people think that these two witnesses might be... Uh, so there's a little bit of debate about who these two witnesses are. Uh, the, some people latch on to the two olive trees and two lampstands, and they reference that back to the seven letters to the churches and how they reference the church as a lampstand. And they would say these two witnesses are... Uh, they just represent the church. They are the church. I don't think that's true. I think they have to be individuals, and part of the reason why they're individuals is because of the special abilities that God has given them the, and the fact that they're all going to die and they're all going to rise from the dead. So I don't think that's a, that's a church-wide thing. I think these are two specific individuals that will actually give a lot of lessons to the church, but they're not the church themselves. So then who are these two individuals? There's a lot of debate about who these two are. Some believe it's Moses and Elijah because they have a similar ministry and they have similar powers. Uh, some believe that it's going to be Enoch and Elijah because those two were taken up into heaven and did not experience death. Others believe that it's going to be John the Baptist and Elijah. You see a theme with Elijah here, right? And they believe that because John the Baptist was a forerunner and Elijah is also a forerunner for Christ, meaning that they come to pave the way for Christ. I don't know who exactly it is. A lot of others think that it's just two un unidentified individuals. That very well could be. I don't know. I will tell you this. John didn't identify them for us either. Now what's interesting is when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus at the transfiguration, John and Peter recognized them right away. In their glorified body, although they had never seen Moses and Elijah, they knew who Moses and Elijah were. I think John would recognize them if they were Moses and Elijah, but he doesn't, if he did, he doesn't clarify that for us. Maybe we would get too hung up on looking for them, and we might miss the point, which I think sometimes the debate about who they are does the same thing, where we miss the point of the two witnesses. The point is, God has equipped them. We don't know who they are, but their special powers doesn't come from themselves. Notice they didn't spend a lifetime training to do the things God's going to call them to do. What we do know is that God has equipped them for the ministry that he gave them. So there are two olive trees and two lampstands. I actually think that this doesn't reference the church. This, we see this coming from Zechariah, and this is a reference all the way back to Zechariah, where Joshua, the high priest at the time, and Zerubbabel were, or were called two olive trees and two lampstands. In fact, some people think that that's who, who these two are going to be, because it's such a clear reference there. But the whole point of, of the two olive trees and the two lampstands, even back in Zechariah, were that these two were filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped by the Holy Spirit. So this is a special equipping by the Holy Spirit to do the work that God had called them to do. God had given them an assignment and he was equipping them to fulfill the assignment. And I think that's the point that we can hold on to, is God has an assignment for you. This is the principle we can draw. God has an assignment for you and he will equip you for that assignment. We see uh, 
special powers given uh, a, a few different times throughout Scripture. Uh, the first time we see Moses and Joshua. God specially gifts them and gives them special power to fulfill the assignment that he had given them. And then we see Elijah and Elisha with the same gifting. God gives them a special gifting to fulfill the assignment he has given them. Then we see it in the exile with Daniel and his three friends. Then we'll see it again with Jesus and the apostles. And the point is always the same, that God has given them a special assignment and he's going to equip them to fulfill this special assignment. But we also see a, a trend that goes like this. When God is doing something and he has called someone, he gives them a special powers to authenticate a claim that they may have. So throughout Scripture, when someone says, God says so, there is a special empowering with those people to authenticate the claim. That is the idea behind the sign gifts. So when you hear someone talk about sign gifts that happened in the early church, that's the idea behind those sign gifts. Is God, they have a special claim. God's doing something new. He's bringing the Gentiles in. He's created this body that we call the church. And so now he has given these special equipping to authenticate the claim that God is doing something new. That's how you authenticate that claim. Jesus, we saw it the same thing. He was raising people from the dead. He was healing the sick. He rose from the dead himself. What was it all doing? It was there to authenticate the claim that he was God come in the flesh, the Messiah. So these sign gifts authenticate claims. These two are witnesses for God, and he has given them special power to authenticate the claim that they are special witnesses from God. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So, although they don't see the unrepentant as the enemy, God has also equipped them to continue doing their ministry. They are going to speak truth. So there's a little bit of debate here too. Uh, is the fire literal or symbolic? I think it's probably both. You know, so too often we phrase this question either or, and I think it can be both and. Oftentimes, something that is literal can still be symbolic. I think that they literally do consume people with fire from their mouth. In fact, that this is how he is doomed to be killed uh, is a divine necessity here. The way it's phrased shows a divine necessity, meaning God is going to make it happen. There's nothing that man can do against God. But they're going to continue to do their ministry. So there are people in America that would love to see the church die. We don't see them as the enemy, but we are going to continue to do the ministry that God has called us to, whether they see us as an enemy or not. Because we have to do what God has called us to do. So God has called these people to a certain ministry, these two witnesses, to a certain ministry, they're going to do it. And they're not going to let anyone stop them. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth over every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
So they have this power that was given to them by God. Once again, we see God has equipped them for the ministry that God has called them to. And when they have finished their testimony, we see that this is on God's timeline. They have finished their testimony. It's not when the beast or when the opposition is tired of hearing their testimony. It's not when the, the opposition has grown so big that they run and hide. It's when they're finished. God had a clear assignment for them, and they are operating on God's timeline. Their testimony. Now this term testimony is a, is a judicial term, and we need to talk a little bit more about that because these are two witnesses, and throughout Old Testament law, in order to establish a claim in court, you needed to have two witnesses. And this goes back all the way through our seals, right? God is laying out a case against unrepentant sinners. And the case is, you deserve death. So in the end, no one can cry out, well, God, I didn't know. And in the end, no one can say, well, God, I was just confused. And in the end, they will recognize that their disbelief was an act of rebellion, not of confusion. So God has brought about two witnesses as a judicial act to, as like we're in a courtroom and God is saying, here's the two witnesses. I gave you guys three and a half years where these two witnesses that were doing miraculous signs in accordance and at the same time that all these things were also happening, I gave you these two witnesses that you would believe. And what do they do instead of believe? After they have finished their testimony, the beast rises. We'll get in later about who this beast is that rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So in the end, the two witnesses that are God's witnesses that are bringing forth an accusation are killed for their testimony. And their dead bodies will lie in the, secret, or in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. The, this great city we can identify with the next line where their Lord was crucified. We see that this is Jerusalem. And it's called Sodom and Egypt because Sodom and Egypt were known for their rebellion and their wickedness. So at this time, Jerusalem is going to be full of rebellion and wickedness. For three and a half days, some... Now this some, this word some, is not actually in the Greek. So, uh, so uh, some translations will say three and a half days, they... From, or people from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations. The peoples, tribes, languages, and nations are there to emphasize that all people groups. There's a little bit of debate on whether or not it's going to be everybody in the world or just a representative from everybody in the world. will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So, the original audience had a hard time believing that every single person in the world would see these dead bodies. The logistics of that, kind of crazy. How on earth would that happen? But we have technology today that makes it a little bit easier. In fact, if you listen to preachers from the 40s and 50s and the television was brand new and they're like, 
Now we know how it's going to happen. We see it clearly. This is it. This is how it's going to happen. And they had no clue about the technology that we would hold in our hands today, where every single person holds a little television screen and is glued to their little television screen and can so easily see it. Now, we would be quick to point out our smartphones and say, this is how it's going to happen. But we still don't know future technology. So let's not get too arrogant in thinking this is how it's going to happen. There can still be yet other ways. We're still not sure. But peoples, tribes, languages, and nations. So ever, I think everyone will be able to see these two dead bodies, and they're going to refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. Now, you notice that the dead bodies will lay in the street, and they won't be placed in the tomb. For, this, uh, for the original audience, this was a great dishonor. There was almost no, nothing more dishonorable than not giving someone a proper burial. So they're going to disrespect them in the highest means possible. And those who dwell on earth, this term earth dweller, or dwell on earth is, is like, we could say earth dwellers, and it's kind of a, a, a way of saying those who don't believe. Those who are still following the earth's system instead of following the kingdom of God's system. will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been tormented to, or sorry, will have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So this is the only celebration of, of the wicked that we see throughout Revelation. We see celebrations of the believers. This is the only celebration we'll see of the non-believers. And they're celebrating because they were tormented by these two witnesses. And I would say that the two witnesses we're tormenting them by speaking God's truth. That's what really tormented them. And because of this torment, they tried to kill them, and as they tried to, tried to harm them, then the two witnesses would, would pour fire from their mouth. But what really tormented them, what really got at them, was the truth of God's word. We have become a culture that is more concerned with happiness, with feelings of happiness, than with truth. And I think we should stop and think about that for a second. Because we see this in, play out in all kinds of different ways. That if only I pursue happiness, that's all that matters. And so we can twist truth because we think this certain thing is going to make me happy. And then we get this certain thing, and we're no longer happy. And so we twist some really basic fundamental ideas of, of God's creation. Like God created male and female. And we twist it and we think, well, it's okay because I just want to be happy. So if I just say I'm a man and I'm not really a man and I'm a girl, then, then once I become a man, once I transform my body to... to to match this therapeutic idea that I have of what my gender really is, then I'll be truly happy. And the problem is, that's not going to create happiness. We pursue happiness and forsake truth, not realizing that truth, God's truth, establishing ourselves on God's truth, is in the end what the only thing that will bring happiness 
So it's easy, once again, for us to point at some certain things that we don't struggle with and say, wow, you guys are way off. But what is it in our own life where we twist God's truth and bend it to our own happiness? I know for me, so often it's comfort. God, if only you'll give me this comfortable life, I'll be happy. Instead of realizing that it is God's truth and following God's truth that will, in the end, bring me happiness. So they're going to celebrate because, because God's truth had tormented them. But after the three and a half days, of breath of life from, uh, sorry, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So this is just revealing God's victory. Both 11 and 12 is revealing God's victory, that in the end, God is victorious. Then they heard a loud voice, from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. So we just see that God is victorious in the end. And so this is, although it's literal, it's also symbolic for the church because we can look to these two witnesses as our prototype. Though we might not have their power, though we might not be able to call down plagues and consume people with fire from our mouth, we can see that although it may look like they can kill us, in the end, we get eternal life from God, and in the end, we are victorious. So God has given us victory right here and right now over sin. We no longer need to be slaves to sin. And in the end, although others may kill us, in the end, we will be victorious. God will give us the victory. And, that, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So there's a little bit of debate here about whether these people that, that saw it and were terrified, that gave glory to God, whether or not they were actually converted, whether or not they repented and said, God, we put our faith and trust in you, or whether or not they just saw the terror of God and thought, wow, I don't want to end like that, so I'm going to fake praise God. And we see people do that throughout Scripture, and we see people do that to this day, where they, they might praise God, but they're still holding on to themselves as God. They still want to be God, although they're terrified of the real God. And I think we could debate that, but the whole point, I think that what, what God's really driving at here is we see the assignment from these two witnesses. They fulfill their assignment. We see God give them victory in their assignment, and in the end, it's not them that do the conversion. It's God. It's not them that complete their assignment. It's God. So if you'll notice, they aren't the ones that equip themselves. They aren't the ones that raised themselves from the dead. And they aren't the ones that ascended, into, that ascended themselves into heaven. God did it all. And in the end, they weren't the ones that caused the earthquake. And they weren't the ones that caused the rest to be terrified and glorify God. It was God. So I think the driving principle we can hold on to is God has called you to an assignment. God has an assignment for your life. He will equip you for it. And whatever the result is, you can leave that up to God. He will create the result, not you. Does it feel like you're failing at an assignment? Be patient and keep following God. Does it feel like you're an awesome success at an assignment? 
Don't take the glory. That's God. God has an assignment for you in your life. He will equip you, and he will create results. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example of these two witnesses who for three and a half years have a special equipping from you, who speak the truth in a time where lies are believed, and who are obedient to the assignment you have given them, and in that obedience you do great things. You change minds, if not hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold on like that. That we would look towards the assignment that you have in our lives. And we would trust in your equipping for that assignment. And in that assignment, we would trust you with the results. And if the results aren't what we wanted, we'd praise you. And if the results are more than we could have ever dreamed, help us to not be arrogant, but to continue to praise you and give you the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.